How do we go about creating housing innovation pilot zones, probably around transit specifically, where we can really throw the kitchen sink at the problem, where we can provide funding incentives for below market rate housing, where we can remove some of those barriers to building, where we can enable accessory dwelling units in a better way, where we can create density bonuses for developers. That might be the, the first step in improving out some of these models, especially around transit. Say, here's how we can build in a way that makes sense for this neighborhood. And it makes sense for developers, makes sense for the affordable developer community as well, and, and really maintains the community character while allowing people to live close to transit. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and our topic today is the affordable housing crisis and best practices and solutions, which will be one of the topics of the 2017 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference which will take place from February 2nd through the 4th in St. Louis, Missouri. If you have not registered, you can still register for the conference by going to newpartners.org. That's newpartners.org. Before we get to today's guest, I also want to share with our listeners a unique opportunity to get in on the beta version of the Infinite Earth Lab program that we are launching in partnership with the Local Government Commission. This year-long online training, mentorship, and networking program is focused on helping local sustainability and equity leaders become more effective in their work and also building a strong national tribe of like-minded professionals. For a very limited time, you can get into this year-long program as a charter member at a super discounted price of only $97. To get this price, you need to register before February 2nd. You can learn more and sign up to be part of this great community and training program by going to www.infiniteearthradio.com slash waitlist. Okay, let's get to today's show. Jeff Belisario is a research manager for the Bay Area Council Economic Institute. His research interests lie at the intersection of community development and finance and his past projects include analysis of Bay Area housing programs, public-private partnerships for infrastructure, and the economic impacts of transportation investments. Also with us today is Shannon Peliquin. She is an associate partner at McKinsey's San Francisco office and a leader in their infrastructure, electric power, and natural gas, and aerospace and defense practices. Jeff and Shannon, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. So uh, we'd like to start out, I think it's good for our readers to know a little bit about the folks that they're hearing from and what kind of motivates them. So I'd like to ask each of you one at a time a little bit about your background. So Jeff, as a finance guy, what do you find so interesting and compelling about community development? What, what motivates you to do 
this work rather than applying your finance skills to, you know, hedge funds and arbitrage or something like that? That's a fantastic question. One I don't often get. And that's, that's actually what I was doing uh, before transferring over into the public policy world. I would say that uh, utilizing finance skills and taking kind of a business approach to policy issues often leads to uh, greater efficiencies, kind of better innovation and better outcomes. And that's one of the things we're trying to drive here at the Barry Council Economic Institute is utilizing data, making forecasts, taking financial information, putting all those things together to better inform the public process. And that's really what we try to do all the time, whether it's looking at housing, infrastructure, uh, workforce, or water. Those are really our top four issues, housing being the biggest one. But in taking all these data points, putting them all together, but then being able to tell a story with that, that informs the, uh, the political discussions going on, whether in the state of California or uh, here in the Bay Area or across the country. Do you have any sense of why, like, you know, why on a personal level that is that important to you? I came out of... Uh, undergraduate at the University of Illinois back in 2007. So right at the beginning of the Great Recession, I guess right right before. And I kind of worked in finance through all that time. I I didn't cause the Great Recession, but I worked in mortgage-backed securities, (laughs) things like that. I saw a a lot of people losing jobs, saw a lot of issues in my hometown of Chicago. uh, And really that drove me to try to use my, my finance skills not for evil, not for trying to like make a whole bunch of money, but instead to to use those skills in a way that would kind of make the world a better place. Came out here to California, and in California we do a lot of great innovation, and that's uh, that's really been the motivating factor for me is in looking at public policy innovations and how we can we can do things differently, whether in the state of California or across the country. Because it, a lot of times, looking at it from the outside, I think outside observers will. We'll say that government, you know, lots of box checkers and people doing the same thing. And what I'm attempting to do is kind of change that paradigm a bit and how we how can we do things better? Fantastic. And Shannon, how about you? You, you know, you're at a high powered consulting firm. You've got a background in infrastructure, electric power, aerospace and defense. What is it about affordable housing and community development that motivates you? It's a great question. I think the richness and how cities succeed is by having a broad swath of folks from different ethnicities, different genders, different religions, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And as I think about the stuff that gets me fired up and how how I like to, to spend my days, it's thinking big thoughts around many of the things that people take for granted in their day-to-day, whether that's being able to turn on the lights or turn on the stove, whether that's being able to, to drive on a road safely or, or take public transit with, with nothing worse than a, a slight delay happening to having, uh, you know, access to, to, to shelter and employment and education opportunities. Those kind of big three around power, water, transportation. I like thinking about and worrying about those things so that, you know, everyday folks can think other, other big thoughts that are important, important to them. And when affordability, you know, affordable housing, uh, it's a, it's a part of that mix because, um, that vibrancy, I think that is so important to a good, healthy community that kind of intergenerational, diverse, diverse type of uh, conversation that folks get to start, that only happens, you know, that happens best at a bus stop or when you're running into folks at a grocery store or in a local community center or, you know, a religious gathering. Um, That gets a lot harder to do when people can't afford, when a good mix of people can't afford to live in the same area. 
Fantastic. Great answers from both of you. Across the United States, there seems to be your your topic at the New Partners for Smart Growth is affordable housing. And my sense is kind of across the United States, there's been this kind of increasing demand for walkable urban living. And its supply really hasn't, supply for that kind of living hasn't really kept up with demand. And in particular, most of our large urban centers are New York City, San Francisco, Boston, Los Angeles, are growing faster than the rest of the country. And they all seem to be facing major affordability challenges. From your experience and what you know, how significant is the affordability problem in the San Francisco Bay Area? Well, from the our perspective here at the, the Bay Area Council Economic Institute, we've we've looked very, very deeply into this issue and really it's it's driving everything that's happening here. We're we're looking at people moving further out into the Central Valley. They're having hour-long, two-hour-long commutes, hurting the environment, hurting their families. There are businesses unable to locate within the, the San Francisco area because it's just too expensive to hire people. They have to pay higher wages in order for those folks to then find housing here. And, and just in San Francisco, just to, to throw a couple numbers out, I, average rents in San Francisco are over $3,500 a month. Uh, median home prices are over $1.3 million dollars. And these are numbers that that you don't see anywhere else, maybe Manhattan. So in San Francisco, it's just a it's an issue of there not being enough housing supply to meet all the demand that the technology jobs have created here. And it's not just technology jobs. People want to live in the Bay Area. It's a great place to to live and to work. uh, But we haven't built the housing to meet that demand over the past few decades. And and frankly, even now in a, a good economy, we're not building the housing to meet that demand right now. Yeah part of how the McKinsey Global Institute, which essentially was the institution, our economic think tank that, that helped drive our, our work on this, which was, you know, we started out with basic problem definition. So I think it's important to get a couple of things right. What does affordable mean? We use affordable, or when I talk about affordable, it is households that are spending more than 30% of their pre-tax income on housing-related expenses, right? So it's 30% of kind of your share of wallet going to housing. When you take that, um, what is what is affordable housing? That is kind of also based on a kind of a standard, call it two bedroom, one bath for a family or a household of four, right? And again, we can debate household size, we can debate standards, but just to give, you know, what is what is affordable and what is access to in San Francisco, I think it helps to conceptualize, you know, what type of an apartment are you trying to rent? What type of condo would, would you might, might, may you be trying to buy? Same with single family, same with single family housing. When we look at San Francisco and we use that affordability threshold, what we found is that more than 70% of San Francisco households are cost burdened. And when we say cost burdened, it's they are spending more than 30% of their income on housing related expenses. And it's 30% pre-tax, right? So it's... Correct. And so what that means is all of a sudden you, you, you know, there's this, I think, preconception that affordable means low income. Well, goodness, that's not that, you know, 73% of households in San Francisco being burdened. That is, that is low, that is extremely low income. That's low income. And then that is a big swath of what is median income, which is 80 to 120% area median income. You know, we can, I guess we could start with, you know, so what, what's driving the problem? What's structurally, has created this dynamic where the housing market in the, and it's not just San Francisco, right? It's the housing market in the entire Bay Area. I, I hear stories about people moving out of Oakland because they can no longer afford to live there and they're moving further out. So it's kind of a cascading effect. But 
But what are the what are the major drivers of the problem? I would start by by saying part of the and not that this is the problem, but part of the issue is that demand is so high. Uh, you look at the Bay Area adding roughly or San Francisco adding roughly 100,000 jobs over the past five years. Uh, but the city's only added a little more than 10,000 new housing units in that period of time. So a, a piece of this is that we've we've come out of the, the recession and we, we have built more, but the demand for housing has really grown at a much faster rate than we've been able to build. And then uh, as our report on affordable housing shows that the policies really do matter in San Francisco and across the Bay Area. Uh, a lot of jurisdictions say they want to build more housing. We want to focus on affordability and a lot of them put money into that. And that that's definitely, that'll solve part of the problem. But there's also issues with the time it takes to approve housing developments. Uh, there are different zoning ordinances that can add costs. There are different limits that, that cities have placed on housing across the Bay Area that add cost to building housing that may make developers take a step back and say, that doesn't pencil out for me. So I think the answer is kind of twofold. One is that demand is so high. And then the second part is that our supply is unable to grow at a rate to match that demand because of some of the policies that are in place in San Francisco and elsewhere. I would agree. It's around, you know, how do you unlock supply where it can exist? And then given that you have an ability, if you have areas where there's an opportunity to, to add more housing units in a, in a smart, thoughtful way, how do you get it done with less risk? and at lower cost. And there are roles for the public sector and the private sector to play kind of in both those areas. But, you know, this is not something that just happened in the Bay Area. This has been after years of not keeping pace with the type of housing supply or construction supply you'd hope to see. So if I just compare to your neck of the woods, Mike, in New York, you know, we take a look over the last five years and New York has added 80% more housing supply if you normalize for population growth uh, than California has. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the ability to, to make it both attractive to developers and then also, you know, to make sure that NIMBYism, it's easier to say yes than it is to say no. San Francisco added 100,000 jobs. Roughly, what's the population of San Francisco? Uh, San Francisco's got about 500,000 households. And the population is uh, about 800,000 just in the city itself. If you look across the Bay Area, you're looking at more than 7 million people, but San Francisco uh, within the boundaries here is under 1 million people. And 100,000 jobs were added. And, and those jobs weren't, uh, like, I think it's important to step back also. My understanding is San Francisco created a lot of incentives to bring tech companies into San Francisco, right? So those those jobs didn't necessarily happen organically. There was policies that drove that kind of job growth. Correct. And, and many of those policies were to place job growth in areas that were not necessarily job hubs. So you look just kind of south of the financial district here into Mission Bay. Uh, a lot of healthcare companies are popping up there around uh, UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco. And then if you look at the the middle market area kind of in, within the financial district, there are uh, also incentives that for tech companies and other other companies to, to employ within that area. I would also say part of this is building off of Silicon Valley's growth or we're seeing faster growth in San Francisco jobs now than we are seeing in places like Menlo Park, Palo Alto, that have traditionally been uh, big tech hubs, uh, especially as companies like Twitter are here now, Airbnb. Uh, we've got the, the sharing economy movement growing. Uh, but also there, there are spinoffs from that. There, 
about four jobs created from every one tech job. A lot of those are service providing type jobs, uh, but there are multiplier effects to these tech jobs. So it's not just the tech elite that are being affected here that are, that are coming into San Francisco. There's the existing families that, that live across the city. And then there are people that, that might want to move here for work that are finding the rents or home prices so high uh, that they are moving out to places like Stockton, uh, Lodi, uh, even some commuting from Sacramento. So that, that's definitely adding to the problem here on the roads and looking at uh, how far families and workers are having to commute to come into San Francisco. Right. I, I don't know who wants to tackle this question first. May I'll start with you, Shannon. So, so what's the solution? What are the, what does San Francisco need to do moving forward to kind of uh, alleviate this crisis? There are what I call, call it three big prongs. One is to just get very targeted around where there's an opportunity to unlock supply, whether that's high, you know, continuing to build out high volume, high density opportunities like towers thinking about places where medium volume density can be used better. So these are things like four-story townhouses to uh, low-density answers around, you know, making it easier to convert a garage unit uh, into an accessory dwelling unit or a garden co- uh, cottage cottage in your, in your garden into it, an accessory dwelling unit. So I think there are things around how do we just get very thoughtful around where we should be building and what makes sense from an in, uh, improved density perspective to build there. The second piece of this then is, gosh, how do we get, how do we make it easier in terms of both land use and construction permitting to get done? If you think about one of the big kind of costs that uh, developers have, whether they're affordable housers or for-profit developers, it's land holding costs, which can run from, you know, nine months to three plus years, depending on the permitting process. So how can the public sector in San Francisco help streamline some of the type of building that needs to happen in these kind of housing hotspots, if you will. And then the final bit of it, I think, is, you know, really promoting transit-oriented development around our mobility hotspots. And this is something that's not necessarily San Francisco-specific, but to Jeff's point, if you think about the commuting patterns and where people are, are coming from to get to the employment centers of San Francisco, where are those kind of from two places where it makes a lot of sense to do much more thoughtful transit-oriented design that allows more mixed use around people being able to live, work, and play in the same area versus having to hop in a car and drive a couple of hours. So those are the big three, you know, identifying housing hotspots, streamlining the land use and construction permitting around those hotspots, and then being really thoughtful around densification around for transit-oriented development. Jeff? And I would totally agree with everything Shannon's just said. The The only thing that, that I would add and, and something we're looking at here at the, the Economic Institute is how does a place like San Francisco or elsewhere in the Bay Area, how do we go about creating, uh, let's call them housing innovation pilot zones, probably around transit specifically, where we can really throw the kitchen sink at the problem, where we can provide funding incentives for below market rate housing, uh, where we can remove some of those barriers to building, where we can enable accessory dwelling units in a better way, where we can create density bonuses for developers. And I think that that might be the, the first step in improving out some of these models, especially around transit. Say, here's how we can build. Here's how we can build in a way that makes sense for this neighborhood. And it makes sense for developers, makes sense for the affordable developer community as well, and, and really maintains the community character as well. 
while allowing people to live close to transit. I think that third bullet uh, that Shannon mentioned is key is a transit-oriented development. If our hotspots are around transit, those have to be the, the highest priority areas to build in a way that, that makes sense for that neighborhood. So in my mind, it seems to me there's a, there's a, there's a driver here that I wonder if, if folks are looking at in the Bay Area. And it relates to the kind of the fiscal impacts and how we fund public services of different types of development, right? So the degree to which San Francisco creates 100,000 jobs that brings a bunch of companies in who pay taxes and has people coming in to shop, restaurants, et cetera. But then they leave and they go somewhere to some other community where they live, where all the burdens of services, schools, you know, fire, all those things for residential come into play. So it seems to me, is, is there any analysis of on a regional level how to, how to address the kind of financial incentives there are to be creating more commercial uses as opposed to more residential uses? It's interesting because, you know, in some ways, I don't know that the two are necessarily in conflict, but they certainly could be working in concert more. And so even if we think about the housing hotspots or the vacant land that is what we call service vacant land or service underutilized land, which are kind of areas uh, that exist in San Francisco that could be delivering at densities much higher than they are currently providing right now, there's a tremendous opportunity to do more with what we have in areas that are already being provided services like everything from sewer and water to schools to police and, and, and fire. So. I don't necessarily think that it's a, an either or, but rather how can we be smarter about making sure that those things work together more effectively? It seems to me there might be some set of incentives, you know, not necessarily by design, but there are some set of financial incentives that encourages a place like San Francisco to be incentivizing commercial development over building more residential, for example. Or even if you look at it on a regional scale, you look at some place like Emeryville, which is largely shopping and commercial and not as much maybe residential per area as might make sense for that area. And it seems to me like that, you know, San Francisco went to this effort to encourage the creation of 100,000 jobs without planning for 100,000 new households. Well, it's interesting because in some ways there are targets for housing and in the Bay Area just hasn't met those, Right. And so it's, it's when we say financial incentives right now, there are dollars that are tied to local housing that the state and the federal government distributes that uh, uh, we get no matter how our housing performance is. And so in some ways, what you, you could be asking for is, can we put more teeth into those dollars to really make sure that they're being spent on what they should be? Uh, the, the fiscal incentives in California, again, don't necessarily match up, as you've mentioned. It makes more sense financially for many cities in California to promote commercial development over housing development. They're able to capture sales taxes. And as you mentioned, by building more housing, there are those added costs in infrastructure, schools, things like that. We haven't necessarily found a solution to that. I mean, part of that would be in changing some of the tax code. Part of that would be in the state finding a different way to promote housing development. And, and the state has tried to do that through different affordable housing funds, through different streamlining approaches, but we, we haven't necessarily solved for that in the Bay Area. And that's really one of the, the biggest problems to, to building more housing. So Shannon, you, you've laid out, you and Jeff have laid out 
the notion of kind of like looking at hotspots, looking at opportunities to create housing in, in some of the places that exist, uh, streamlining the process. You've talked about, you know, transit hubs and densifying around transit hubs. And Jeff has talked about, you know, kind of housing innovation, hot zones, if you will. What's currently happening in the San Francisco Bay Area? And, and is, are these uh, types of approaches being tackled? That is a great question. I think there is a significant amount of support to make movement on that, uh, on this front. And it, it is definitely top of mind for both public and private sector leaders. I think there's been a big step forward with BART and some of the goals it has around housing and affordable housing in particular in their transit lands, if you will. Um, and I'm excited to see what happens there. Is there any Bay Area-wide study? Has there been any kind of study done that says, you know, this is the shortage of housing. Here's the hotspots. Here's how many houses could be built in those hotspots. Kind of... Some, something that's looked at the scale of the problem and come up with a solution that matches the scale of the problem? It's a great question, and there's no easy answer on that. I think there have been pieces of the analysis that have been done. We have done some, some of them. I think there is a need to say who, who is actively going to say, I am responsible for, for fixing this problem. And importantly, I think, you know, as much as we talk about it being San Francisco or have discussed that in today's conversation, so much of the Bay Area's, or so much of San Francisco's problem is a Bay Area problem more broadly. And so in some ways, it's, it's a need for a regional answer, not just, not just a city-specific city answer. Well, I think here, here at the Bay Area Council, I mean, half of what our organization does is advocate for exactly what we're talking about here. And I, I think we need to remember that it's not cities that build housing necessarily. It's the developer community, whether it's a for-profit developers, the nonprofit developers, and and there needs to be money put behind all of this, and, and money put behind all this in a way that that makes sense. We're working with some of the biggest employers to to see if we can help them through public-private partnerships create more housing. I'm thinking specifically of UCSF down in, in Mission Bay. Again, they've they've got hospital residents coming in, they've got students coming in, uh, and they need more housing, but they need to partner with a developer, they ne- might need to partner with a nonprofit developer. And frankly, I mean, th- this, this problem is not going to be solved overnight. I-, I think a lot of what we need to do is create those types of partnerships, demonstrate success in certain areas, and hope that those demonstrations can be replicated across the Bay Area. There's this pet set of potential best practices and there's a huge problem and there's different people working on this. What needs to happen going forward to really make progress on this on this issue? Who are the players that need to come together and what do they need to do to start writing the ship, if you will? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, in some ways, it's much easier to talk about than it is to probably execute, right? But I think at the, the overall, that this has to be driven by our public sector leaders, the affected Bay Area cities, and come together and talk about how what the goal is, and let's put some some actual specific targets out there that are not necessarily just associated with classically defined affordable housing, but rather this quality of life. How do we think about the right mix of people, which brings the middle class in, into the into view too? And then it's to say gosh, guys, what are we going to actually do to get this thing done? And in particular, I think it's three things. And we've talked about these before. One is by saying, which areas in my city are am I going to focus on in terms of bringing more housing units to bear, uh, affordable housing and otherwise? 
The second is, how am I going to, for those hotspots, really radically reimagine what it takes to get something built in the city of Sacramento or the city of Oakland or the city of San Jose? And let me play around with some of that to kind of get as, as efficient and effective as possible in a way that's dramatically different from anything that I've done previously. And then the third is, who am I linking up with and how am I bringing private sector to the table with me? And that, I think, is not only developers, but also large-scale employers who have just as much skin in this game as the community members themselves. And, and I think it's really going to take that type of public sector leadership and then specificity, community-specific specificity, that will allow us to make meaningful progress. Well, I think the the state and Governor Brown put together a plan that, that would have provided dollars for below-market-rate housing and would have basically forced cities and other jurisdictions to approve housing that met general plan requirements in a quicker way. So that would have streamlined housing approvals, taken both time and costs out of the housing development equation. I I think we look to the state a lot here to see what the state can do to either incentivize cities through different carrots and sticks or create structures that either create more funding or uh, eliminate some of the barriers that, that currently exist today. So it, our approach to this is one that that is top-down. Again, I think a bottom-up one is good to create those small-scale successes. But I think the state, and specifically Sacramento, we need to be thinking about what are the bigger policies that could really move the needle on this in a, a quicker in a quicker way. Fantastic. Jeff and Shannon, thank you both so much. It's been a great conversation, a really critically important topic. And I really look forward to seeing your session at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference. That'd be fabulous. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. And it's been a great show today. I want to thank you all for listening. And we look forward to you joining us next week on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.